Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful, cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies, so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now, Jim Lang. Um, Let's go to some of the exceptions to pay taxes later. So some people were saying, hey, Jim, what about the step up in basis rules? You know, it's really important that we are that we take advantage of the step up in basis rules. So let's say for discussion, say that you buy a share of stock for a dollar. It goes up to $10. You sell it, tax capital gains on $9. Example number two, you buy stock for a dollar. You you give it to your, let's say, uh, child. Your child sells it for $10. Now your child will have to pay capital gains on $9. Example number three, you buy something for a dollar, it goes up to $10, then you die. You get caught a step up in basis and your dollar basis goes up to the value of the date of death, which is say $10, you sell it for, or your heirs sell it for $10 and there is no capital gain. And gee, doesn't that make more sense than paying taxes on an IRA? Well, it might particularly if you are older and sick. It's often a big mistake. What we have found, and there's actually studies that prove this, that if you, particularly if you have a high concentration of either a particular stock or even a particular um, asset class, perhaps large U.S. companies, that instead of having a more balanced portfolio, you are holding on to this either um, highly appreciated either stock or asset class that often the harm of not having a well-diversified portfolio or if that one particular stock goes way down, uh, that, that is far riskier than the tax savings that you might get from dying. The other thing is, and again, you know, I can't say this with certainty, um, but my bet is that most of you will survive far longer than the step up in basis rules. In other words, the step up in basis rules will be gone and eliminated before you are. So I don't hold a lot of stock in that unless you are older and have or sick and or sick and have a very short life expectancy. All right, then um, the next area that would be an exception to the pay taxes later rule is to take some money. And this is only really since the secure act that we have been recommending this, although we did sometimes before, but uh, we'll talk about the secure act later on. And um, the one of the exceptions is to take some money from your IRA, cash it in, pay tax on it. Now, then with the money that is left, um, to gift that money. Now, cash going from the taxable to the tax-free environment 
Obviously, Roth IRA conversions are a perfect example. The only thing is, that is money that will be for you, not for your heirs, although eventually the Roth IRA will likely go to your heirs. But if you take some money um, from your IRA or retirement plan and you cash it in and you pay taxes and you have money left over, and then you gift that money that you have left over to your heirs, um, typically children, grandchildren, and then those heirs invest that money in a tax-free vehicle, you not only get money out of your estate, but it's like a Roth conversion, but it's outside of your estate. So what am I talking about for tax-free vehicles for your heirs? Well, the one that comes to mind that is probably consistent with your values, this might be more for your grandchildren than your children, is a 529 plan. That is, you're putting money um, into a tax-free account that can be used for the education of your children, grandchildren, or um, other beneficiaries. If they put money um, into a health savings plan, that is a, <clears throat> like I mentioned earlier, that is a tax-free vehicle. If you buy life insurance, and it's this, this is typically going to be on your life, not theirs, but the same principle works on theirs because life insurance, um, assuming it is done right, um, is going to be income tax-free and estate tax-free. And the other possibility is your heirs take some of that money and they put it in their own Roth IRAs or they use some of that money or Roth 401ks or they use some of that money to pay the taxes on a Roth IRA conversion. This is a really interesting strategy, particularly for people who are very IRA heavy um, or probably will not spend all the money that they have during their lifetime, which I'm going to guess is the vast majority of people on this call. And they are looking to save taxes for not only themselves, but also uh, their family. The other exception is what we'll call tax bracket management. You know, sometimes it doesn't make sense to cash in, um, let, let's say to spend a IRA money, if that will push you into a higher tax bracket. In that case, it might, spend, it make, might make more sense to even incur some capital gains. Um, and there, or for example, if there is, if you see that there's going to be a change in your tax bracket, either going up or going down in the future, that might change some of the uh, best order for accumulation and for distribution. Um, and, and by the way, of course, we don't know what's going to happen, but we suspect that income tax rates are going to go up significantly. And if they do, don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, except for the Roth is going to be even more important than it was in the past. And some of the um, mathematical charts and, and graphs that I show would actually have a even bigger impact by following our advice if indeed income tax rates do go up. Finally, I will mention my favorite way to spend your money. When I had a nice guy um, giving you ideas on how to spend your money. And I didn't learn this from a book and I didn't learn this. And you're not going to read this in financial principles. And it's actually something that I learned from my father-in-law. My father-in-law is now 97 years old. Since I can remember, and I've been married 28 years now, um, has hosted a family gathering every year. Well, we missed a year for COVID, 
um, um, he hosts this family gathering. It's in, actually in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, and he pays for everything except for booze. So he will he he flies in. I think there's about maybe 25, uh, and it's mainly children, grandchildren, and he also includes siblings and nieces and nephews. But he flies and he pays all the expenses for this family gathering of what essentially is a five-day uh, period. And it, it's kind of assumed that um, that everybody is going to show up. Occasionally somebody literally can't make it, but the dates are chosen more than a year in advance. And the family spends really quality time in getting to know each other. So our daughter, who's 27 years old, she's a single single child, um, and she doesn't really have any close relatives in Pittsburgh where we live. She feels very much connected to her family, and not because she sees them, you know, once every year or two at a wedding or a funeral or a bat mitzvah or, or something like that. It is because she sees them every year and they spend a lot of time together and they play together and they hang out together and they just have, and they go to the comedy club and, and the resort. He used to go on a cruise, but now it's a, it's a resort. But, you know, and it has comedy clubs and tennis and golf and hiking trails. And for me, it's great for cycling. Um, and people can go do whatever they want. His only request is that we all have dinner together. And usually the cousins go off and they hang out and do something. And, you know, my daughter loves to play with her younger nieces and nephews and cousins, etc. So it, it's just a wonderful way to spend your money. And when my father-in-law dies, um, yes, he will leave a little less money to his family. On the other hand, just think of the richness of the of the family bonds that he has created. So I would say to spend, uh, the best way to spend your money is to buy experiences with families and friends. And by the way, I have been relatively unsuccessful in getting people to spend more money after we show them how much money they can afford to spend because it's hard to change habits. Sometimes they spend a little bit more but I would say the areas that we have convinced people to spend more money and what intuitively makes sense to a lot of people is to spend more money on family experiences. Okay, so we are going to um, continue. We're uh, less than halfway through, I think. I didn't check the time yet. We're a little less than halfway through, but I will just mention this. At the end of this talk, um, I will... Uh, talk about the possibility of working with us. Um, I'll talk about assets under management. I will talk about what we call a financial master plan, financial master plan. Um, and by the way, the demand for that is so high. We're, we, we really only have room for a couple of slots. This isn't hype. We just, the, the problem is you, you need really sophisticated CPAs and the state attorneys uh, to do these financial master plans. And we you know, we're a relatively small firm. There's just, I think, 22 of us and and many are support. So um, we just don't have a lot of bandwidth for these. But we um, but we actually think that assets under management is a better model anyway. I will tell you more in depth why I think that we have the best model, uh, particularly for IRA and retirement plan owners anywhere on the planet. Um, I will do that at the end. 
On the other hand, we, we, we are doing this based in the order in which they come. So if you've heard enough, yeah, gee, Jim, I want to talk, I want to talk with you. Um, I would um, sign up for that consultation. I'm going to ask Brian to set up something in the chat so you can fill that um, request out. You're just giving us your uh, contact information. We will email you with um, a really a actually a whole package of stuff, um, including a questionnaire that will help us determine if we can help you. And if we can't, I'll tell you. Um, we have so much business. I'm only in the business of helping people who I think we can really help, um, and we can see if we are a good fit to do business. All right. So before I go to a new topic which is going to be the SECURE Act, which, by the way, is still part of this whole conversation. Don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later. I'm going to ask Erica if we have any questions that I can take right now. Uh, we definitely have more questions. Um, there are a couple follow-ups about HSAs. Uh, uh, one, uh, Jean asked, what happens to the excess HSA after death? And Ryan asked, is there an amount that is too much uh, to have in an HSA account? So I guess is there a limit either to the total value of the account or to the amount that you can add per year? You know something, I think that if, I think that they're playing stump the speaker. I should know what happens to an HSA after death. Um, I don't. So, so you got me. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to just guess. Um, what will typically happen is people typically have much higher ex medical expenses uh, later in life. And that is when the HSA is usually used. Um, I'm sure we've had clients and, and HSAs are relatively new. So it's not like we have 20 or 30 years experience of working with HSAs and people dying with HSAs. But the short answer is, I don't know. Uh, the second issue is, what is too much? I think it'd be very hard for you to have too much money in your HSAs, because even if the point is to uh, spend it before you die, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to have more medical expenses than you can likely accumulate. Um, Maybe we'll have somebody take a quick look at that and I can answer the first question more at length. So anyway, if we're playing stump the speaker, you got me. Do we have any more, Erica? Hopefully ones that I know the answer to or at least can shed more light on. So uh, this is a question from Ryan um, and he asks, would you consider tax gains harvesting? And I'm not sure if that's what he means is tax loss harvesting. Uh, or if that's a strategy that I'm just not familiar with. But he said, uh, would you consider tax gains harvesting a reasonable exception to your proposed spending order with consideration to reasonable tax brackets? Tax gain harvesting sounds like total misery to me. That, sound, that's, that sounds like paying taxes now. Um, the only time I can picture that um, is, and I don't know if he's referring to offsetting uh, capital losses that he might have, um, but or maybe if we know that the the favorable taxable gain treatment is going to go away, it might make sense to 
incur capital gains before it does happen. On the other hand, I don't know of any legislation that is going to eliminate or reduce the benefit of capital gains. Um, in fact, it's probably far lower than you think. For example, for a 15% taxpayer, capital gains rates are 5%. Uh, even for a 39% taxpayer, the capital gains are 20%. Um, capital gains sounds really miserable to me off the top of my head. Um, if you're talking about capital loss harvesting, which is really cool stuff, that is where you are um, actually uh, cashing something in that has gone down and you have a loss and then you use that to offset other gains and that can be a, a really good tax planning tool. Uh, we have sections on that in in probably just about every book that we have. We're not going to cover that. That's more in the investment area, although it's certainly a matter of tax savings. For whatever it's worth, sometimes that can save as much as uh, one or even 2% on, of your portfolio costs. So um, that is a significant strategy. I've never heard of capital gain harvesting um, and off the top of my head, it sounds pretty miserable. Why don't we take one or two more and then we will move on. Great. Thanks, Jim. I did ask for um, a little bit of uh, real time research, uh, expert research on the question about what happens to your HSA after you die. And obviously, uh, this might not be specific enough, depending upon what the person who asked it actually was getting at. But I, I was able to uh, get an answer from some of our experts uh, that uh, the amount in your HSA goes to the named beneficiary after you die and the way that those funds are treated in terms of the tax treatment of them, it depends on who the person is. So I guess it, it like, I don't know if that's specific enough, but the person didn't really ask. I mean, I assume that they were, I, I think it was Ryan who was asking, I think, I assume they were probably wondering how, you know, the beneficiary, like whether they would have, what how what the tax treatment of that would be for the person, the named beneficiary. But I think you have to know who the beneficiary is to be able to determine that. Well, if I had to guess, they're going to treat the surviving spouse the most favorably. And I don't know if they would continue the favorable treatment for uh, children. So we'll have to call that incomplete research. Yeah, perhaps we can. But thank you for the for the quick the quick answer. Absolutely. Maybe maybe, maybe whoever gave you that answer say say what is the answer for three classes of beneficiary? Number one, surviving spouse. Number two, lineal heirs, that is children or grandchildren. Number three, non-lineal heirs, you know, partners, um, unmarried partners. Uh, nieces, nephews, friends, etc. You know what? I will uh, run that question over to our legal team and I'll ask it again tomorrow during the uh, estate planning event. Okay. Um, so uh, Thomas asked a question. This is also pretty specific, but it is about Roth. So um, he says, I'm retired and receive a pension from my previous employer. The majority of the payment is reported on a 1099R, but a portion is paid through a W-2 because I was a highly paid employee. The amount on the W-2 is reported in box one as well as box 10, other deferred compensation. Is this amount available to make a contribution to a Roth IRA? 
Well, first of all, I kind of don't care what the answer is because you can still make a Roth IRA conversion and a Roth IRA conversion is more or less the same tax treatment as a uh, Roth IRA contribution. For a Roth IRA contribution, like any IRA contribution, you must have earned income. And the question is, is whether the particular 1099, well, the 1099 um, for pension is not earned income. That was, that was earned while he was working, but there's apparently some kind of deferred comp arrangement where he's also getting a, a, 10, a, a W-2. And his question is, does the particular type of income that he's getting on his W-2, and he even gave us some specific information that's on the W-2, does that constitute earned income for which both I and my spouse can contribute to a Roth IRA? And again, this is a stump the speaker question because the answer is, I don't know. My guess is if it's a W-2, it sounds like earned income, but I don't want to tell you that and potentially be wrong. But the truth is I kind of don't care because I assume if you're thinking about Roths that you have traditional IRA money that you have after-tax dollars, and if you wanted to, you could get the same result by doing a Roth IRA uh, conversion. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Lang Money Hour where smart money talks. If you've discovered the answers to your questions and would like to schedule an appointment with Jim, please call our offices at 1-800-387-1129. That number again is 1-800-387-1129. Or if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming webinars, go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars. That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars. That's 2020 webinars.